as you move in your career, uh, think about a, uh, a growth trajectory chart or a bar chart. The tactical stuff is the things that you needed very early in your career. Like example, uh, the X's and O's are really important. But as you as you grow in your career, like let's say by the time you're a head coach or you're leading an organization, it's all those soft skills, the ability to communicate, the ability to uh, set a vision and have people follow you. Those are much more needed than the X's and O's later in your career and in the, in, the, in the more broader the organizations that you're leading. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me, and now let's dive into today's episode. It is not every day you have the chance to connect with, learn from, and listen to someone who is a senior manager at a global organization such as Facebook, who also worked at Amazon, who got their MBA at Darden, and is a veteran. But that is exactly what we have in store today with Stephen Pock. Stephen's a retired major in the Air Force Reserves. He spent 12 years active duty working as SWAT team leader and later a special agent in the Office of Special Investigations where he specialized in counterintelligence operations to disrupt spy and terrorist efforts, both domestically and abroad. Now, after leaving active duty, he spent time working on strategy consulting for intelligence agencies and Fortune 500 companies. He spent just under five years leading a different business or different businesses at Amazon, launching, uh, including launching one to two hour delivery prime now and the growth for Kindle textbooks, but he also currently leads a team at Facebook who makes products safer for the community. His undergraduate degree in criminal justice was from the University of Maryland, for any of you Terps out there. And as I mentioned, his MBA is from the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. This was intimidating, and Stephen found me through an unlikely medium. Yes, the one that is often demonized, social media. We share a lot of affinity, a shared affinity for all things leadership, and how to navigate communication and, and understanding that, you know, it's it's not about rah-rah. It's about understanding the roles of the follower. It's about understanding your own communication tactics. More importantly, it's about understanding true strategy in the workplace. Guys, I can't be more excited to bring you this episode. And if you're new to the Art of Coaching community, please understand, please remember, we have so many other things that cross domains here, whether it's my book, Conscious Coaching, our online courses. Uh, we have communication training that we have utilized with people who are in strength and conditioning, my, my primary base where I started, but also individual an individual who's running for mayor. So if these conversations about leadership, behavior change, how we evaluate great communication interests you, please go to artofcoaching.com. I promise we have something for you. Without further ado, I bring you Stephen Pock. Guys, you were jumping right into a conversation with me and Stephen Pock. Stephen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I always feel weird saying welcome to the show because I know off air I describe <laughs> it as, you know, just a lunchtime conversation and then the show makes it really formal. But 
Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to to chat about a lot of things, especially leadership oriented and with everything that you have going on. Oh yeah, this is uh, I love your show, and I, I think the topics because they're so diverse uh, really interest me, and so happy to join in the conversation. Speaking of diversity, you know, one of the things that drew my attention to you, and and this is I don't want to tease the audience too much, was your thoughts on leadership. This you know not being a one size fits all model, which. Anybody that watches our show knows we're really not about the rah-rah stuff. We're about being adaptable. You've been incredibly adaptable within your career. Now, guys, if you're jumping in and you skip the bio, I'd urge you to go back. But given the amount of positions you've held and, and the, the nuanced nature of those situations that you put yourself in as a leader, as a follower, as a professional, talk to me about, you know, has that ever wreaked havoc on you really knowing how to identify yourself in the space you reside in or how have you done that being a veteran and then being in tech and then being in defense and all these kinds of things? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something I've wrestled with because uh, uh, at times I, I've identified myself as uh, I'm an expert marksman. Uh, I'm a SWAT team leader or I'm, I'm really good at this thing. And then I have this fear of trying something new, but I have, I'm, I have this lifelong desire of learning and trying to grow myself and, and challenge myself. And so uh, I lean on those experiences. So when I go to the, my next thing, I lean on my experience of like, I'm super confident in my ability to do a lot of these other things. And I have these uh, experiences that I can look back on and say, yes, I was successful. I didn't know what I was doing then when I walked into that, that role. But I know that when I, when I go into this new role, I, I can deal with the ambiguity. I can deal with adapting myself to the situation and the people that what they need and what the situation needs. And so those are the things that I, I really lean on, but it, 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 it really is a challenge um, in the beginning stages of like, uh, I think you called it uh, imposter phenomenon. Like that happens, right? And like it's acknowledging it and then keep continuing to move forward. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because one question we've gotten, I don't even know if I know how to answer it well. So I I'll, mm-hmm. I think maybe you and I can teeter-totter back and forth here. Is somebody once said to me, hey, you know, I'm really starting to learn as a coach and a leader that I need to get outside the X's and O's, whatever that means relative to your industry, right? Just the tactics. I need to learn more about people and management and leadership. However, and this was their question, uh, you know, how much is enough? You know, whether it is related to the tactics or nuances of, of your job before you really focus on higher tier management and leadership, you know, how do you, how would you address that question of how do I know when I know enough from a tactician standpoint to branch into other forms of leadership, coaching and what have you? Yeah. It's it's a good question. I think the way I think about it is it's balance. Right. And so one, it's never enough. You're continuing to grow. Like those skills are the ones that as you move in your career, uh, think about a, uh, a growth trajectory chart or a bar chart. The tactical stuff is the things that you needed very early in your career. Like example, uh, the X's and O's are really important, but as you, as you grow in your career, like let's say by the time you're a head coach or you're leading an organization, it's all those soft skills, the ability to communicate, the ability to uh, set a vision and have people follow you. Those are much more needed than the X's and O's later in your career in the, in the, and the more broader the organizations that you're leading. So, so with that, and given the organizations you've been a part of, you know, people mm-hmm. hear this advice all the time, Stephen, but they don't always take mm-hmm. it seriously until, you know, some uh, 
author or some big name celebrity or some aspirational mm. self says it. You work at one of the largest organizations in the world. Is mm. this more than just kind of the fluff that we hear or how does soft skills represent themselves every day, either in the job you have now or, mm-hmm. you know, in, in any of your previous positions, if you'd rather talk about that, where was a hurdle and obstacle where you're like, wow, this is really where I need to, to direct a lot of my education. Um, I, this may not, uh, directly address the thing that you're, you're getting to, but, um, we can probably come back to it. But I think one thing I like to talk to people about is right when they're, uh, trying to get promoted or right after they've been promoted. And the thing we talk about is the things that you were doing that made you successful at X level is not what's going to make you successful at the next level. And so we try to pinpoint like these soft skills and the ability to influence, um, and, in multiple organizations that I've been in, the ability to influence and bring others along to your ideas or to support other people's ideas, because uh, it's very real to, that there's relational capital that you have to think about in an organization. And so uh, my current organization, your ability to work with really large teams like that are cross-functional, you have no direct uh like responsibility or ownership of that team, they work for different leaders. And so you bring all these teams together and we need to get to a solution. And so the ability to hear and listen to what people's perspectives are, what their concerns are, and then try to address them and make people feel like they're heard is really a, a huge key to success at any level. But the, the, the further you move into an organization, it, it becomes more important. And I think you alluded to that. Well, I'd recommend anybody and guys, I'll link it in the show notes you had written an article on, on LinkedIn and you had, it's called on followership. And I think you mentioned you wrote this at the airport. Is that correct? Uh, I, I wrote it on a plane. On a plane. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. I, need to, I need to work on my listening skills. Um, no, good. But on number five in that list, you had said, you know, mm-hmm. every leader needs their team to be successful. And when you see those areas, uh, blind spots, so to speak, you do have this choice, right? One is complain and pick apart the leader and those around you, or even a, attack the organization, which I think is, is fairly popular. Somebody's not supporting you, or there's not enough psychological safety, or there could be whatever. Um, and now, or you say, B, find your, like, how do you leverage these strengths and experiences to support them? And do you think that becomes harder when leaders isolate themselves, you know, and, and do identify as one thing, because then they don't have a, a rich reservoir? Or is it, is there something else that can kind of lend to helping them navigate that? Wow, that's an amazing question. <laughs> I think uh, yes. Uh, the isolate anytime you isolate yourself as a leader, like you're you're missing perspective. And the thing that every leader has to consider is like how are your actions and the things that you do are perceived by your team? Are you being fair and equitable across your team when you lead large organizations? That's really key. It doesn't mean you don't invest in people or anything like that. It's just making sure that you're aware of how your actions are being taken. The, the other thing I was thinking about on that, on that point of um, it's your mindset of how do you react to negative things in your organization. One thing I've taken since I was just an individual contributor in the military and through any organization I've been a part of is all of us can control what we do, right? And so what's in my control? So if I don't like something that's happening within my team of four people, like I can control, I can try to change that, right? It's my sphere of influence. And as your sphere of influence grows, 
like your ability to really um, help people or change the way, like if you don't feel like there's psychological safety, you can create it in each of your relationships. And, uh, or if you don't like the way that the organization is going, like you can be a part of the problem solving. And uh, to be fair, and I've, I've gotten this feedback before when I've, when I've posted things like this is, yeah, that assumes that you have people who are receptive mm. and, and so there, it is a two-way street. So if you're in a caustic organization or team and you're trying to influence your, your bubble of sphere of influence and no one's like receptive to that and it's just, it's not working. Like I've been a part of that. I've failed at it too. I think we all so have. Like, yeah. And so like, it's, it, it's like best case scenario. This is how you should, your mindset should be, but sometimes it doesn't work out and it's how do you adjust to that? Yeah. And I think that, that brings an interesting piece of, you know, you mentioning a caustic organization. Uh, one thing that drives me nuts, and you and I have talked about this offline, is the pervasiveness of rah-rah leadership, right? Like we can just mm-hmm. positivity mindset our way out of every situation. We can we can come in with icebreakers with our teams and, you know, some tips and, and everybody's going to do really well. And you and I had talked a little bit, you know, just offline about, well, when you have followers and, and the research talks about this who are, uh, have narcissistic traits or they are kind of, they can display toxic behaviors. That doesn't mean they're toxic people, right? It just means that there, there's a fit, a behavioral fit here. That's not locking in, you know, navigating that, how, what approaches have you learned? Don't work, right? Like, and I guess to be more specific with my question, we tend to see somebody who's problematic. We try to listen to them. We try to make them feel heard. Then we try to influence or inspire them out of it. Have you ever had to take a little bit more of a, a, a direct, heavy-handed approach? When has a leadership book and the advice in it failed you, and how did you pivot out of that? Oh, man. Um, it's a deep question, so feel free to attack it any, how, any way that you want. For sure. It, that is a deep question because uh, I think as a leader, you fail a lot, and you get a lot of feedback uh, uh, about from yourself. And how, you know, I think you, every leader has this internal dialogue of like, man, I could have invested here and I would have prevented this thing from breaking or this person from breaking. Like those things happen. Right. And you, and you try to reflect on, okay, what could I, or should I have done differently? And I think the real leadership challenges I've had are when I couldn't pull myself out of the situation. Like I was so deep admired into that person's problems or the organization's problems that I could, I couldn't get perspective and when you reach the point of, I literally don't know what I should have done differently. I, I have to like talk to my, my friends, the people like a part of your council, right. Of, of these, this group of people that you trust, they know you, they know how you approach situations and they can give you some real feedback because you've lost perspective. And so in situations like that, like, I think anytime you try to follow a, a book, you can, if you don't have balance of the situation, if you don't have balance of what do the people need at the time? And sometimes you need a raw, raw leader because it's, it's that situation and those people need it because they're down. But a lot of, uh, in a lot of organizations, what they need is clear vision, clear communication and a, and the ability to communicate with you. It's not just communication downward or uh, to the organization. It also has to be to the leaders. And so those are the things that are, usually more important than the raw rawness it's it's adjusting and adapting so if you work in any of these uh really large tech companies or 
uh, in businesses, what they need are clear communicators. What they need are people who can listen and help enable the really smart people you've hired into your organization to do the great work that they want to do. Yeah, I think that's a, that, and, I, and I'm going to come back because I want to ask you a question regarding clear communication. But if I can share for a moment something that I know that, that failed me is we know that when we read a lot of these books or we, we try to become leaders, uh, for me, a lot of it is managing your emotions, but not in the way we may think. I think a failure of mine, if I can share it, is that you, you know, when you think of leaders, at least what the, what the best kind of leader is in the, in the Western world, we always kind of espouse somebody who's calm and rational, right? And they can take their time and be really pragmatic. And I remember I've tried taking that approach once when an athlete was fairly emotional. And even when an operator I had been working with and I said, Hey, uh, tell me how you feel. Okay. I can appreciate that. You know, I didn't say I can understand, right? I said, I can appreciate that. And uh, what do you think are some solutions and this and that? And uh, I got bombarded with just like, man, can you cut the shit you know, can yeah. you just be real with me and put this away? Mm-hmm. And then I realized, you know, I just took off the filter and I was like, yo, I'd be pissed too if this happened. And in reality, this is kind of how I'd want to behave. And this is things that I do. And, and I leveled with him because I can be fairly irascible, you know, like mm-hmm. I grew up as a little brother, Steven, right? You get yeah. your butt kicked a lot, especially when you're four years younger than your sibling. And and the one thing I could lean on was my temper. Um, and what was odd is the day that I learned that sometimes my temper was actually, a superpower. It was good. Like showing somebody that I had emotion and that they Mm -hmm. weren't these like, uh, socially acceptable ones all the time was okay. Whereas another coach who didn't show that and tried to be the, you know, buttoned up leader, people just said, I can't relate to him or her, you know, like he doesn't, it seems like an automaton. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. If any of that resonates with you. It, It absolutely resonates. I, I even go into the point of, as I think about as a leader, there have been times where sometimes I was the wrong leader for the person or the organization. And, and I was, I was trying, like, I have a framework for how I lead and guess what? That framework did not resonate with a person on my team. And they're like, you're full of crap. This doesn't work for me. I don't like this. This is what you should do differently. And I think the thing that all of us have to do is say like, okay, is there a better fit for you? Maybe it's not on this team. Maybe it's not like, on my team. And it's not like a negative on you. It's just like, we're not fitting in this. And, and so it does make you question, like, is there something I need to do to adjust my framework? Is there something I need to do to adjust my style to ensure that I'm reaching this person or this team that whatever I'm doing is not resonating? Yeah. I'd love to hear more if you're willing to share Mm -hmm. about, about that framework. Cause you brought up a really important uh, term that I think goes hand in hand with communication it's fit. And there are times where, you know, somebody can feel like, let's say somebody got fired or somebody was, uh, you know, it just didn't work out in an organization. However that transpired, we tend to take it personally. Um, you know, but we don't see that in athletics. When we talk about the weight room to the boardroom or the locker room to the boardroom, athletes get traded all the time. Sometimes it may be personal, but oftentimes, Hey, it doesn't work with that offensive system or that defensive scheme. But in work, we can take it very personally, you know, and, and sometimes you're right. It's just, hey, this isn't where you can flourish or this isn't where we can flourish together. It's not a personal thing. We both gave it a good try. Um, but would you mind kind of uh, going in yeah. on that, that framework a bit? Yeah, I um, I would tell you it's definitely evolved. So early in my career, like, uh, again, like leading a SWAT team or something like that, I was very like, here's the line. If you don't meet my standard of excellence, you're out. 
And like, and if you're, if you're on that line, you're out. Like I'm, 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 I'm just going to hold this really hard, rigid line. And if you couldn't meet it, like you're like, you're not worth my time. And obviously that's a very immature way of thinking about things. And, um, as I grew, I had leaders who helped me understand that like everybody has a superpower. Everybody has strengths that they can provide to the organization and to stop viewing people as black and white in or out, but more of the, where can we leverage their strengths in our teams? And so, um, the way I think about my, my leadership framework is really about, okay, how can I, when I talk to you, what are your superpowers? What are the things that energize you? What are the things that you feel like if I did this my entire day, like I would be flying high and I feel like I'm doing my best work and vice versa. What are the things that drain you? And so the example I give to my teams are like, I love to context switch. I love to be in rooms with people and talk to them about their problems and help them unblock problems or solve the things that they're trying to solve uh, that are important to them. And that gives me energy. And I, I would love my day to look like that. Luckily, I'm in a job that allows me to do that, where I literally like it's overload of context switching, but I really enjoy that. The the, the flip side that I share is like, um, I, I would get drained if I spent my entire day in code or if I was uh, just doing analysis all day, just like crunching. And I did that for a week straight. It doesn't mean that you can't do it or I can't do it. It just means I'm not getting energy from it. And I'm probably not doing my hundred percent best work. If I, if that's what I'm doing all day. Yeah, no, I think that helps a lot. And I want to key on one term and pardon my ignorance, but I think it'd be good for our audience to define uh, context switch. You know, when you, when you say mm-hmm. that, can you give us an operational definition and then some examples of what you mean? Sure. Uh, I guess my definition would be that um, like when you run from like one meeting or one situation and you you're literally talking about completely different topics, different types of problems. So like very real world uh, scenarios that you'll find leaders in. So like in like when I was at Amazon, I would go from one meeting where I'm meeting with someone on my team who's thinking through like a product problem. Like we have this customer facing issue. How do we solve it? We have these potential solutions and you're talking through what are the pro cons? What does the data tell us? Flip, you walk, you walk into the next room 30 minutes later, you're talking through a financial model of how your business performed for the week. And you're leading the team to think through like, what are the big things that matter here that we should actually go and fix? Flip. Now you're going into a room with a design team and get in trying to give feedback of like, what do we think this new design proposal will, will be? And is it the right solution? Then you're going to meet with the three of your VPs and trying to explain what is your entire business doing and what are the trade-offs that you're making? What is your long five-year strategy? Those are all completely different problems and mindsets and the way you show up in each of those really matters. Yeah, that's really clear. And I appreciate that. I think, uh, you know, when, when we look at context being defined as the situations and circumstances where something occurs, you know, that, mm-hmm. that has been a huge struggle point of mine lately is how do I balance a, a PhD topic and a new book that I'm writing or being a podcast host, you know, and then being a dad. And then after that, being able to work on a project and then certain times of years, I'll still, you know, work with athletes. And so, you know, people will ask me sometimes, like, how do you manage information overload? And for mm-hmm. me, I always try to pair it with a certain context. Um, mm-hmm. I also have tried to create a ritual. You might laugh at this and feel free to. One thing that's helped me, I mean, even after I'm done with this podcast today and I need to go work on 
a, a related but very different topical thing is I try to create something that is a clear separation of that. That might be taking a walk. That might be taking a shower. Mm-hmm. That might be any kind of activity that allows my brain to just turn off for a second, absorb what was, and then prepare for what is or what's going to be. Do you have anything like that? Like that that you do is that is that absurd? And and tell me because I'm a aspiring leader. So if you have better tips, I want to know. No, I uh, you're 100 percent right. Like you need to create these mental breaks, right? And so yes, I I, I go on walks as well. It's like sometimes it's listening to a podcast. Sometimes it's a, it's a it's a walk in the evening to basically break my mind from thinking about all the topics that your day just took in, right? Um, and so it's, sometimes it's, it's being, some people will go on social media, some people will read the news, things like that. The things I'm wary of is taking in new inputs, right? So if you're in an information overload, because you're context switching a lot, it's actually not good for you, or at least not good for me to go and read the news and then like literally try to process what's happening in the news, right? I have to create time in which I'm going to intentionally do that when my brain is in a place where I don't have to literally uh, think about the next thing and be prepared. And so like some of the things that you're talking about is, for example, if I'm going to go speak to a few hundred people, like I'm going to create a block of time before that, because I know that's how I operate best. Like if I want to come in with the energy that I want to show up with, I need to create the spaces for me to be prepared for that. And I can't go back to back to back, walk into a room of a few hundred people speak. Like it's just not going to work for me. I, I work with leaders who can, and it's, they're amazing. But for me, like each individual has to identify what it is that they need. Yeah. I think that that should be inspiring to people because we have folks that will listen to the podcast that will feel, and I know I was one of them and still I can fall into the trap that every day has to be filled with input, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Wake up and you uh, take it, you, you read an article or read a book. When you walk, you listen to a podcast when you do this and it can be great for when you're creating content, when you're ideating, what have you. But there needs to be a point where it stops and you do something fairly mindless uh, and whatever that may be to you. So you mentioned you do walk, you, you walk and what have you. Is there anything that you that you do, and I know you have children, so this is limited to some degree with that, but is there anything that you do that if you told somebody, hey, this really helps me kind of just blank slate, reset myself, what have you, that somebody would consider unconventional, meaning it's not exercise or reflection mm-hmm. or what have you. Is there anything there that, that people may think would be, uh, Oh, I, I never thought of that. Um, it's actually something our resiliency teams talk to us about, which is, um, if you've been through something that's really stressful, there's research that shows that playing a game like Tetris, where your mind is engaged, but on something very different, so like I'll open up a Tetris app and it, it would actually, it helps like memories or like tra- uh, graphic events from like attaching to your memory. Mm. And, and so uh, that's like a weird one that like most people wouldn't think of, of like, Oh really? Like, so if you've just witnessed something really rough or your normal part of your job, let's say you're a police officer and you see something really, really rough. If you don't want that to stick there's a lot of research that shows that like something like that actually helps you helps those memories not attach. No, I think that's super helpful. Uh, shifting gears, context switching. Uh, yeah. I, I think something that a lot of our audience can relate to and something that brought us together in a way is, you know, we, and we talked about it a little bit earlier when you switch roles, when you become, when you transition, whether from a leader to one organization to another, something that can follow that is stigma. Now you have a background that's, that's military oriented and now you mm-hmm. work in tech. 
Um, I think that's something that the world has seen more and more of now. There's a lot of, you know, I think that leadership switch or uh, the collinearity there, especially for military, is uh, can be a little bit more, I don't want to use the term obvious, that's poor communication, but I think it makes sense for some organizations. I know in, mm-hmm. in our world, a lot of times strength coaches or people in the performance realm, the, the larger world doesn't really know what that is, right? You can be perceived as a, a personal trainer or this. Mm-hmm. So I know that I've had to work to shake stigma of like, hey, not just a weight room guy. Did you have to do mm-hmm. any of that when you moved from military to tech or what have you? And can you talk to us a little bit about that? hundred percent. Like you are, you're spot on. And, um, uh, I think you you still find it and it's getting way better because there's a lot more nonprofits, uh, and organizations out there who are helping, uh, not only veterans, but also employers understand like the value that you can bring, uh, with a veteran on your team. And so, uh, I think initial stigmas that I faced when I first entered tech, and so I got out of the military and uh, active duty in 2010 and uh, trying to get a role in tech was really hard. Um, going to graduate school was my path, but there are many more paths now uh, that opened up doors. And what I found and what you still find is a lot of people, when you talk about what's the obvious fit, is people think operations. They think the best place is, okay, they can lead people. They can, they can build processes And so I'm going to throw them into a warehouse or I'm going to have them manage these type of operational problems with they and they, and they also come in with some preconceived notions. So when the people in the military that often your peers are uh, you have a lot of blue collar folks who are coming from like really uh, diverse backgrounds and, and all over the world. Right. And so like, for me, I'm the first person to graduate from college in my family. Um, and there, you see a lot of that, these people who are very bootstrapped, like they're going to school at night, they're in the military, and they're persevering through tons of ambiguity. They're getting moved every couple of years, so they're having to restart school, all those things. So it, it teaches them a ton of grit. It teaches them to problem solve. It teaches them to prioritize, like what really matters at the time. Uh, so when the, so then flip side, when you move over to the uh, tech, what you see is a lack of diversity in some of those backgrounds. And so what I found when I joined tech is that there were a lot of people who had not uh, actually didn't know any veterans, no one in their families, none of their friends. And so what you, a lot of times what veterans find is they're an ambassador for every military branch. They now are just grouped as uh, you were in the army, which is, you know, there's multiple branches, (laughs) but like everybody just assumes you're in the army. And they also, like, I found that some of my leaders would assume things about me, like, Hey, like you, you're just really good at taking, like taking orders and going and doing the thing. And great military organizations are not like that. Actually, like a really good military organizations, at least the ones I've come from, they're looking for great ideas and solutions everywhere in the organization. And they, and the best ideas bubble themselves up. Mm. They're not like a very hierarchical, like you will do this. And at, there's times for that, for sure. But like, I found that like, that's the biggest challenge to like the, uh, I guess stigma that, that I've had to overcome in, in tech initially. And then you go to different organizations and, um, it's our job as every veteran to go and like show, like be the example of excellence in every area, not just those things that are, we have this positive stigma in our, in our favor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I 
to, to draw attention to yet another article mm-hmm. you had written, this was that tips for veterans to communicate their experiences in interviews. And yeah. I think you did a really good job. And admittedly, you introduced me to a framework I hadn't heard before is you mentioned the STAR framework, right? They should be able to explain. You'd mentioned a veteran should be able to explain several impactful things they, they've done in the military and post-military through looking at this framework. And STAR is situation, task, action, result. And I thought you did a really good job of the collinearity of saying, hey, and, and I view the same as, as strength and conditioning coaches, we all have to uh, deal with ambiguity to some degree. Um, you guys do it, obviously, in a, in a far more kind of life and death fashion. We may have to do it with a star athlete that, oh, all of a sudden blew out their knee, can't do this. What's the contingency? How are we going to adapt to this? But we're all entrepreneurs in our own role. And so, you know, is this something that you think that, People really have to practice. Do you think that uh, a certain level of, of reflection and mindfulness of just saying, like I always try to give people helpful activities of saying, what's something you do in your job and then pick another career, even if you're not interested in going in that career, just as a thought exercise, mm-hmm. think of how that same thing is done in that job. Um, meaning how did you get really good at talking about this? How did you start to, are you just a reflective guy? Do you dissect this? Did you do really poorly in a lot of interviews? What, what helped you? Uh, I don't think I'm a great interview. So like if, uh, if people are interviewing me, I never feel like I've done a good job of like explaining the experiences that I've done. And I, I, I have hundred percent, like what you just said, I have failed in interviews miserably where, uh, I just couldn't connect with what the interviewer was asking me for. Oh boy. On the Maybe flip, I'm doing on, that to you. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, on the flip side, I've also, I've been, I've interviewed uh, well over 500 people as a part of in my roles in tech. And uh, I've seen, and I've gone to the top business schools and interviewed there. And what I, and what I find is that the people who have those narratives and who have, uh, you don't have to have a bunch. You need probably five, five like strong examples in your career of where you can address the very common questions that are going to come up about how you dealt with ambiguity, how you like exceeded expectations, how you service the team, those type of things. Uh, if you have five great examples, uh, I think they will resonate. And so just thinking through those, and honestly, part of that was going through grad school and like they, they kind of prepare you to have those like buttoned up and ready to go. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful, especially giving a number of what are five examples. I think the irony is sometimes we can think of them when we're uh, just having a casual conversation. I know mm-hmm. I tried to pack a number of them in my book, but then the irony is if I'm asked them, I could be like, uh, I swear I have a 300 page document that, that details this, right? Like, um, <laughs> So, so let's flip that a little bit. You mentioning you've, you've interviewed over 500 people and whether or not you're in a role, well, let me ask you this. Are you in a role now where you actively will interview or seek out candidates or what have you, or is that? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we talked about how you came from a non-traditional background. Mm -hmm. Do you, when you guys, let's say uh, an opening comes up, you know, at, at, at Facebook or any of the other organizations you were a part of, how do you, do you ever look at non-traditional roles? Like you and I connected, right? I'm, I'm in yeah. human performance. Um, yeah. but like, how do you, how do you kind of seek out these folks where you're saying, all right, we need somebody for X role or we need somebody in leadership. I'm going to look laterally here. I'm going to see who peaks my, like, how do you go about finding the diamonds in the rough, so to speak and saying, Hey, mm-hmm. you ever think about crossing boundaries here and coming to the, coming to a different uh, thing here? Does that make yeah. sense? 
Yeah, I would tell you, this is the thing that uh, in the organization I've been a part of, these tech companies uh, that I've been a part of have been amazing at this. Like we generally, my, my general principle is I look for excellence. So when I'm looking at a resume, I'm looking, I'm not looking for you have done the exact job that we're trying to hire for. I'm looking that you are a rock star in the thing that you do. And so that's like, good. that's, and what you find these tech companies doing is they are looking for that. Sometimes like example, the more senior you are, the more specialized you need to be. Right. So yeah. it doesn't apply to everybody. Right. But when you're talking about like coming out of grad school or you're uh, maybe a couple of years out of undergrad, those type of things. And we're interviewing for those. We're looking for people that excel, that they can, they can solve problems. They take initiative and they're just great at what they do. And then what we try to do is we have a framework for how we interview and we're looking for behavioral examples of how you've exhibited the things that will make you successful in our organization. And it's a lot less about like your very specific experience. And so I'll give you a great example where of an interview I, I just completely bombed, which was I was interviewing for a product team, uh, and uh, the questions were around, like, how would you start a streaming service at our company? And, um, and what are all the factors that you would think about? And so I started thinking about it and I'm, and I'm listing them out. And I didn't have a great framework for like how I would build it out. How would I price it? Because the answer they wanted me to get to is, what would I price it at? Ah, and, yeah. and, uh, and I completely bombed the, inter- uh, bombed the interview. What did you say? I was, did you say, look at well, the competitors? <laughs> no, I, um, I thought about, um, inventory, like here are the things you need. Like you obviously need a bunch of artists yeah. in, in the music. Uh, I would think about like, so how does that compare to our competitors? Like the offerings, like what is, what is the experience? Like those type of things, like those are all good. What I think, what I didn't think about because I didn't know, cause I was coming out of the military is like, did I check with legal on the digital rights? Like, because I didn't know that because I had, how would I know that? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, at the time I was like, well, this, this sucks. Like, how would I ever, how would I ever know that? And so like, if you were a, if, if I was a coming from a product management role, I would have known that. But like, uh, so that was an example of like where someone, they were looking for pretty specific tech experience and I completely bombed it because I did I didn't know because I hadn't been in that space yet. And what a phenomenal example, because there are some things, man, there's a lot of touch points here. I want to mm-hmm. try to not talk your ear off, but like, for example, mm-hmm. I had been in a legal situation at a relatively young age that that is never anything I'd want to put on my resume. Now, it was a simple business thing, right? It's not like yeah. uh, uh, it wasn't like murder in the first degree and I had to hire, you know, somebody to get me off. But like uh, that gave me such an incredible experience with how to look at communication, how to mm-hmm. look at running a business, how to look at contracts and contract negotiation that I feel like that gave me a tremendous leg up when we've uh, created even speaking contracts, online courses, protected mm-hmm. ourselves, you know, from those right. standpoints, but it's never something I could communicate uh, on a resume. And then you wonder if like, let's say you were interviewing me and you say, Oh, talk mm-hmm. about a hardship or what have you, man, yeah. do I bring up, Hey, at, at this age, I was in a legal battle. These are things I didn't know. Maybe I'm embarrassed by that. Maybe that knocks me, but you're like, Oh, wait a minute. So you're a guy that's worked in performance, but you have an understanding of legalities of things that's led to you creating more robust contracts. This could be a great asset. It it just becomes so tricky from a disclosure standpoint, right? I think it also is good to hear you say that, you know, the, the resume doesn't matter so much in terms of, yeah, we want to know if you're a rock star at what you do, 
but there might not be things you want to hide. And and maybe I misinterpreted this, so correct me if I'm wrong. I remember one point a, a video game company, a larger company, uh, mm-hmm. had wanted a, an employee who was like, hey, I read your book. I'd like you to come speak in our organization. I'm going to pitch you, right? And they came back a couple weeks later and said, hey, it was a no-go. And I said, well, do you mind me asking why? It's all good feedback because I had given them a media kit and what have you. And they said, well, they just noticed a lot of your background is in sports performance, and they're looking for somebody that's, you know, more like a, and they literally name dropped Cheryl Sandberg. And I said, oh, so like you're going to reach out. Now, there might be a little bit of a price difference here, and I don't know Cheryl's Huge, availability, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? But what they had looked at because on my CV, it had showed my strength and conditioning experience. So then I thought, I looked at my wife mm-hmm. and I go, do I need to hide that? I go, do I now need to like send people a media kit? Because I also talk about the company. But it just becomes tricky of knowing really how to represent yourself so you sidestep the stigmas and biases. What advice would you have given in that moment? Like, is that something somebody that should hide? Is, is, do they need to highlight something else? What would you do? Uh, it's interesting. So on your, on, on your resume, what I, sh- what I would say is, like, just sharing how you rock it, right? Like, the things that you're great at, like, what are the results that you drove and, like, you're responsible for? Like everybody has like scope and big things that you're a part of, but what are the things that you solved and like what you brought to the table? What I would tell you, Brett, like in that situation, like I, I I really think about like customer fit, right? So in your situation, that wasn't a good customer fit because they, that organization, whoever the decision maker was, wasn't valuing your experience and what you were about to bring to them. And, and like for you, that's not a good fit because you want people who get it. Right. You want people who understand exactly what you're bringing in to the, uh, to that room. And we have made mistakes. Uh, Let me take a step back. Anytime like we think about bringing in guest speakers and things like that, it's often someone's like 11th thing on their list that they need to go research someone to bring in. They need (laughs) to go, they have this budget. And, and so people don't do the due diligence. Right. So in, in this scenario, what they should have done would be like do the due diligence to understand like, what is your message? And they would understand it's not just about athletic coaching. It's, it's much broader, right? It's about actually, how do you, how do you gain buy-in? How do you lead teams? How do you actually uh, get people to uh, do the things that you need the organization to do? That's very different, right? And so they have to, they have to hear that. I can tell you about a scenario where we, we brought someone in and uh, it was a complete misfit for what our employees needed to hear because it was, uh, it was a veteran who was just way too graphic and way too like raw, raw gung ho. And it, that's, that's not who you, we necessarily needed it in that situation. And for that, those set of employees, what we needed was someone who was much more deliberate, maybe, maybe someone who was more thoughtful. It's okay. If they were a veteran, like we wanted that, but what we wanted to highlight, we wanted, we didn't want like that specific, uh, message to be given to our employees. And so that's the thing that we want people to be thinking about is like, what message are you trying to send? Yeah, no, that's helpful. What message are you trying to send being the key point there? I've mm-hmm. always, I always have found it fascinating on the outside, looking in at how some organizations world-class will, will bring people in that, you know, maybe somebody worked with one person for 30 minutes and then they've created a speaking career and yeah. it's like, man, and, and this is certainly, I'm going to use the name of an organization here, but it's not a real example. Um, let's say Deloitte and Touche, maybe they just needed 30K that they needed to drop in the marketing budget, right? And now mm-hmm. all of a sudden this guy that talks about, let's call it the way, hey, I have the way, tell me the way, show me the way. And I'm like, what? 
what are these people getting out of this? You know, and, yeah. mm-hmm. but it, but it is fascinating, you know, looking at this and, and being introspect as introspective as you are, I do want to ask you uh, a simple but tough question. If you're open to it, are you good with it? Uh, I am. Can I, I wanted to add one more thing to what oh, you were talking about. The resume, means, please. Yeah. So the, the resume, I would say that uh, one best practice is to actually have different resumes. Yeah, I agree. So, That's in, what you, we've done. so in your, in your case, you're talking about a different set of marketing materials. Like, yes, you should. And so for, for people who are applying for a couple different fields, you should have resumes targeted to those fields. So it is relevant. Like you want to make it as easy as possible for whoever the reader is to understand why your experience is relevant, relevant. to that field. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful because, it, and because one thing that helped me do that is I said, guys, this is no different than Nick Saban or, or somebody else like coaches. Cause I think the retort was, well, we've never really had coaches come and speak. And I go, well, I assure you the Pete Carroll's and, and Nick Saban's do. I saw a lecture of Nick Saban speaking at um, a car sales show here in Atlanta, like talking about, oh. Hey, how sales and sports is like sales in this, but mm-hmm. it, it's so fascinating the way we perceive the world around us. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, selfish question. When you yes. first found out about me and we connected, would mm-hmm. you, did you have any idea what a strength and conditioning coach was? Like, if you heard that term, what was, what's the association that came to mind? Um, so I, I, I do, I do lift and I do follow strength and conditioning. And so like I have my own routine and so I'm pretty well versed and, and I know there's a wide range of people who are very knowledgeable and off, off also having worked out in CrossFit, like I've also had like wonderful experiences of like really intentional coaches. And I've had people who like could really get folks hurt. And so I've, I've been on the wide spectrum. And so when I think about strength and conditioning, I think about that range. Like there's, there's people who are really, really great coaches uh, who are very deep into the research of like, how do you, how do you improve the person that you're working with? Yeah. Not like, here's a broad paintbrush for everybody. And then there's also people who would literally just scream at everybody that walks in the room. And so that was my context uh, in how I thought about strength and conditioning. Obviously I had been listening to your podcast and, and had a little bit more context of like what you and what your, what your message was about. Yeah. I just always think that's interesting, you know, to get an idea of how we find out about one another. Um, Mm -hmm. And and what I was going to ask you prior, and I'm glad you went back and made the point about the resume and and how you would communicate things. Do you consider yourself a clear communicator? I don't. And uh, I, it's probably one of those things where I think our communication skills are something that we uh, uh, we have to continually work on. Yeah. And so the things I think about are my ums, my my pauses, the little disfluencies um, here and there. Right. And and I, this is something I've been intentional about, like, how can I grow it? I've considered hiring, um, you know, like a vocal coach, all these type of things, right. To help me be more influential. The reality is, and I think a lot of your listeners, do you have the time? Do you have the money? Like I'm a father of three children that are under like under six. And so like, it's, it's not, it's not realistic. And so what I have to do is like, okay, what are the small things that I can pay attention to that'll help me communicate effectively? And the reality is uh, I have to think about what form, so in my one-on-ones, each person has a different way of receiving information. And so I need to make sure I'm tailoring my approach to them. 
this goes into context switching. Yep. And when I go into different rooms, I need to understand like, what is the audience there need and want and who's the decision maker in the room? So if you're in a room of 30 people, 50 people, hundred people, who are the three people or a couple people that like I'm trying to reach and make sure they hear the message I'm trying to send. Yeah. I think that's helpful. And that's, that's really specific, you know, with, with you being in tech now, a question mm-hmm. I often get asked is, well, how do you measure or evaluate good communication? And we're doing a lot of research mm-hmm. in the medical space of this dichotomy between does my clinician get me and do they get it right? And, and we look at communication and I think this ties into the question I just asked you. Great communication. Isn't so much, Hey, do you have flawless speeches? No disfluencies. It's, yeah. uh, it's a byproduct or what we see as a byproduct is enhanced efficiency, more trust, mm-hmm. right? A lot of transparency. How do you guys measure or evaluate whichever term you want to use uh, mm-hmm. great communication in your organization? If you don't mind me asking. It's a great question. So you have to think about like, what are the, we are global, right? And so uh, we have people who are in multiple time zones uh, from Singapore to California. And so a lot of our communication is written. And so how we measure that is we, we put out frameworks for people to use that makes it clear why should they read it? Because when you're at these tech companies, there's information flowing nonstop. And what you need to be able to communicate is like, what's the, so what? So we use something simple, like a device, like a TLDR, uh, too long, don't read <laughs> TLDR. Uh, and so it, it's, it's essentially in the military, they call it a bluff, a bottom line up front. Um, but uh, it, it's essentially a summary of like, here's this really long research or really long thing that we looked into. And here's the problem, uh, the actions we took and, and the results of that. Um, but then the TLDR is like, if you're, if you're consuming tons of information, the summary tells you, do I need to read further? Yeah. And so we, we try to build that into our teams. And then also we give feedback on that. Like, here's, here's what we need. And if you can standardize communication, whenever you're across a broad organization, so let's say you lead uh, several hundred people, if you can have consistency in how you receive information. So if you're the leader receiving all these emails, uh, that, uh, that consistency will help you gain context faster and also help you know when you need to read further. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. The, the bluff TLDR, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's essentially, Hey, don't bury the lead. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, it, it's funny cause it's a form of marketing in and of itself to a mm-hmm. degree. I mean, in scientific journals, you've got to do the abstract and while certain people bemoan, Oh, don't just read the abstract. Well, I'm sorry. The abstract is going to give you insight as to should you read further. You know, because mm-hmm. some people just purchase, some people will publish research just, you know, to substantiate their paycheck. Not all research is helpful. Not all information is helpful. Right. Yeah. Um, listen, I want to be responsible with your time and I want to get you out of here. So we just got a couple hot seat questions and then you're off. Is that okay? Sounds great. Beautiful. All right. Now, speaking of context switching and speaking of our affinity for kind of getting rid of leadership BS that's out there and helping people realize there's not just one way to be a leader. I'm going to give you a quote and it's a common leadership quote and you've mm. got to give me kind of, Hey, where, where do you agree with it? And then when do you think it's, it's not true? And, and just to give you a disclaimer so you can feel safe, anybody listening to this, this is a game. All right. So it doesn't necessarily reflect my or Steven's views. He literally has to argue against something that may even be inarguable. All right. So we've put it out there. It's safe. Everybody knows the context. There are no bad teams, just bad leaders. There are no bad teams, just bad leaders. Give me a point where you agree 
and mm-hmm. a time where you're like, nope, that is straight trash. It's interesting. I, uh, what do I think about that? I think I, I have a, an aversion to anything negative. And so, uh, my focus wouldn't be on the bad leader. Like the way I think about that would be what is the team doing to make that leader better? And, and I've gotten feedback of like, Hey, it's not my job to make the leader better. I would argue it is like, if I feel like my leader has blind spots or they're not doing something that I see the organization needs, it's my job as a team member to call it out. Like, Hey, Brett, I need you to do this thing differently. It'll make our team more effective. And so that's how I think about it. It's not just, um, I'm not about assessing blame. I'm about like fixing things. And so, uh, it, it that's what I get from that quote. It's, it, that's more of like, I'm, I'm trying to say like, this is a bad leader and I've worked for great leaders and really bad leaders. And so that's how I think about it. Every time, like my job was to help make the great leaders even better or support them. Or if I have a, uh, a really terrible leader, what are the things I can try to change and help them? Yeah, no, I think I think that helps. And I think that goes back to the value to a degree of ambiguity. You mm-hmm. know, we uh, a neighbor who works for Lockheed Martin and I were talking the other day about, you know, how like we have a role at Art of Coaching that is very high ambiguity. I mean, we're we're a company that's got to adapt during a pandemic, right? Small business mm-hmm. adapting a pandemic. And yeah. so we require we don't have this kind of collectivist culture where you are going to get guidance and handholding every step of the way. We are going to ask you metaphorically to do a 10-80-10 or literally, hey, 10% vision set. Here's the sandbox you got to play in. 80% creation, at least a wireframe or whatever term you want to use. And then the final 10, what have you. And and there are a lot of people, and rightfully so, that are just like, I couldn't survive in that. You know, I Mm -hmm. couldn't. But I would argue we all need to learn how to survive in that because that's essential to being a father or where are your Mm -hmm. thoughts on that? And I promise this is the last one and we'll let you go. So there's some reprieve here. No, I love this question. And the reality is, Brett, like some people will, are going to thrive in that. And we have absolutely, we have a lot of roles on my, on our teams like that, where we need people who can thrive. And the hard, the hard thing is, which we could dive super deep into is like, how do you actually assess someone's ability to deal with ambiguity when you're interviewing them? Cause we've missed, right? Like we've made mistakes and like the person's, everybody says they can, but like, how do you actually assess it in behavioral style interviews is the challenge. The, the second part is I, w- I would like to call out that like not every job needs that. And so uh, yes, ambiguity. that's right. Yeah. It's a, to a degree, yes, you need to have, have flexibility and be able to deal with ambiguity sure. in life. But there are some people, for example, like some of our engineers, I need them to be super rigid. I need them to be super focused and very clear and like, these are the business requirements and here's what we're going to drive. For example, I don't, I don't have a lot of ambiguity thrown at them because I want them super focused. It's similar to like, uh, there's certain, just certain fields in which you don't want that and don't need that. And so it's trying to find the right fit for the role. Yeah, no, I, and you're right. I think that there are certain jobs that, that don't need that. And that's okay. I mean, we look at jobs, certain jobs in education, certain jobs in service industries, certain jobs in engineering, those things, Hey, there's a step-by-step mechanical process to do these things Mm -hmm. and you can thrive in that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, uh, but that's not the nature of tech. And that's certainly not the nature of a lot of pandemic oriented kind of business adaptations we've got to make now. But I appreciate the, the thoughtful exploration of that. Stephen, you have been more than kind with your time. Um, I know you're a private person. I want to respect that. So I'm not going to uh, ask. Feel free to share if you want where people can reach out to you. I mean, I recommend they 
they check you out at LinkedIn because you've written articles there. Do you have a preference there? Or do you want to stay in the shadows a bit? Uh, LinkedIn is great. That's that's sufficient. Uh, I'm not I'm not trying to write a book or a blog post or anything like that. It's sure. that right now that's the medium in which I'm communicating. So that would be great. Well, I I thank you, and hopefully I asked some questions that made you think and reflect. I look forward to our future discussions. And um, guys, make sure you know. Reach out, look at these things. You, you have the opportunity to learn from somebody that has done this at such a global level. And I hope you have taken a lot of notes. If you haven't, go to the podcast reflections. Stephen Pock, thank you again for your time. Yeah, thanks, Brett.